You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you've been uh, tracking along with us, you'll, you'll notice that we're, we're getting really close towards the end of the book of Galatians. We've been in this for now quite some time. It's been a gr- wonderful journey to just to hear from God's word and uh, Paul's letter to the ch- church in Galatia, but also God's word to us. We're reminded that this isn't just a, a, a historic letter written at a particular time to a particular people. Uh, it's God's inspired word. It means that it's God, it's God breathed. He, he gives this message to us. And, and oftentimes we, we desire God to speak to us. Right? That's a desire of, of all of us. God, would you, would you speak to me? But we know that when we open up the scriptures, uh, we hear God's word. He is speaking to us today. And so as we approach this word, let's, let's listen to it with open heart, open ears, uh, ready to learn from him. Uh, I'm going to start reading actually in chapter 5, verse 26 through 6, 1 through 10. Chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. Yeah, the entire book of Galatians is about the gospel. The entire letter is about how the grace of God transforms everything in our life. It is all about the basis of God's work in Jesus Christ for sinners. Christ's work on the cross is applied to a person by faith through the Holy Spirit. And, and this is what Paul has been saying through this time. He's saying, here's what God has done for you. Here is our need of him. And here's what God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here is how that work is applied to the heart of the person who, who cries out for, for mercy. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, that person is transformed from the inside out, from one, from one place to the next. It's a radical work of transformation. An encounter with the gospel cannot leave us unchanged. An encounter with, the, with God's word, with this message, cannot leave us unchanged. You and I cannot go through this journey of reading Galatians, understanding it, receiving it, and then just go about our business as if nothing has ever happened. We have to either reject it, deny it, or we have to come under uh, this wisdom and this truth. We have to be changed. Last four weeks, we looked at the fruit of the Spirit 
this inward battle of every Christian, right? In the, what's happening inside of the, the heart and soul of every believer is this struggle. The struggle to do what God has asked us to do, the things that God desires us to do, the, the struggle between the Spirit's intention and agenda to make us more like Jesus, and then that struggle with like kind of doing our own thing, right? The, the Bible says the works of the flesh. So there's that internal battle that happens all the time. You and I feel it, we know it, we experience it every single day. And we looked at applying the gospel deep within our hearts so that we could bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit could grow and increase in our life. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we've been there in four weeks. You could probably say them by memory, hopefully. No? <laughs> some, some laughs. And uh, we're, working, we're working those things in our heart, right? So we spent four weeks in thinking about how God manifests these characteristics to us, how he loves us, how, he's, how he is joyful over us, how he is gentle with us in our sin, how he's faithful to us. And now our passage moves from the inward battle to the outward battle. Now our passage moves from the things that we struggle on the inside with our own heart to the struggles that we have with other people the messiness of relationship. The truth of God transforms us, but it doesn't just transform us in our heart with our relationship with God. It goes beyond that, right? It overflows into every area of our life. You see how it can change your relationships and your marriage and your, your work, it, it, how your peace, your joy, all of that stuff. And this is the hard part. This is the messy part of, of this letter because this is a beautiful letter of Galatians where we rest in the faithfulness of God. And now we get to the hard part of the passage where he says, okay, how is that gonna change your life? And we say, well, let's just, let's just close that up real quick right there. <laughs> let's just go about, let's, that's great. Let me just take this love from Jesus. But now he's saying, so how does this overflow into your relationships with others? Let's be honest, there's nothing more messy than relationships with others. It's one thing to come to church every week and hear about the fruit of the Spirit and how the characteristics of God are imparted to us, how God forgives us and loves us. It is one thing to hear God is love, God is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then another thing for us to hear, okay, how will you show these things to other people? It's a lot harder I love that God is all these things for us, but it can't end there. The love of God for us is amazing, but it's like fuel in the engine of a car. It's like putting gas in a car and then just keeping that car in the garage. If you never drive the car, what is the point? If love doesn't move us beyond ourselves, then it, if, it never, if it never manifests itself into an outward expression of faith, then it shows our faith to be powerless within us and insincere. And, and the Bible wants us to know this. God wants us to know this. A life lived according to the gospel will and must transform our relationships, the way that we interact with one another and especially with those within the family of God. We are to love all people, but then there's this unique relationship. There's this special kind of relationship that those who trust in Jesus and call on his name for forgiveness, who know of the grace that they have been given, how they are to treat other people within the church. 
And so our outline today is, is simple but extremely practical. There are two things that we want to see. Two, not three, because I don't know if I could, my voice could last three. So we're going to do two today. Um, we're going to look at the roadblocks to a gospel-centered relationship. We're going to look at the things that get in the way. And then we're going to look at that, the portrait of a gospel-centered relationship from our passage today and just walk through it verse by verse. Let's look first at the roadblock to experiencing gospel-centered relationships. Really, the first half of, I mean, the, of chapter 6 is set up by the final verse in chapter 5. Right? So the chapter 6, the passage we just read, it's really all set up by that one verse in chapter 5 that we read, Galatians 5.26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is what we don't want. This is the roadblock to healthy relationships. And then he goes into talking about how to get that. Um, there's one main insecurity that we can potentially live, that if we live out of, will destroy our potential for healthy relationships. It's conceit. It's, it's conceit. This seems like a powerful insecurity if I can you know, prevent it, if I can prevent being conceited, if I can prevent being, you know, making it all about myself, I can have healthy relationships. Here's what conceit is. Let's define it. This is what the Strong's Greek lexicon, as it looks at this word in the New Testament, it is a deep insecurity that manifests itself in needing to be recognized, admired, admired, and praised by others. It is this, this need for that affirmation. It's that need to feel uh, a sense of belonging because of what you think of me. It is a need to feel special because of your view of me. It is my need to feel validated, affirmed, praised because of what you think of me. And Paul has spent the last five chapters talking about, no, all of that comes from God. And when we forget that, when we forget that our self-worth and our identity comes from what God has done for us, we will start to seek for it in other people. And that is a destructive boundary to healthy relationship. Uh, someone, uh, conceit is never used as a character compliment, is it? I I've tried to think of like a context where that word could be used as a compliment. It, it's, it never is. What are your top three, you know, best qualities about yourself? I'm conceited. Okay. Let's not hang out. Paul's talking about there's two different ways to be conceited for this to manifest itself. Provoking and envying. And these are kind of polar opposites, it seems like. So, provoking is someone who provokes is sure of his or her superiority over another person and looks down on that weaker person. So someone who looks at themselves as morally superior I'm better than you. So they're evaluating and comparing themselves based on other people, right? So they're finding their self-worth in how they compare themselves to others. And when they find others that look less than them, they demean, they exploit, they look down on. That's provoking. Envying is someone who's, who's the opposite of that, someone who's conscious of their own shortcomings and looks at others who have what they don't have and wants what they have so that they can feel special. It's not fair that you have this, I want that. I, I won't have self-worth, I won't feel confident in myself until I get what you have. It's just always this comparing, and both of these, here's why conceit is, is a, is a gospel-centered relationship killer. They are both self-absorbed. Provoking and envying, it's all about 
being self-absorbed. Both are seeking their worth at the expense of other people. Both are works righteousness. Both are trying to find acceptance and value from people around us, not from the value that God gives to us in the gospel. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about idols and idolatry, right? And, and we look at the Old Testament, we look at how God's people were idol worshipers, and this was condemned by God, and they were disciplined for it. And sometimes it's hard to make that translation into modern day. Well, we don't have that in, in, in America, this idol worship, right? Let me tell you this, the fastest growing religion in the United States is self-worship. It is all about ourselves. It is about, I need to be praised. I need to be admired. And we feel worthy to the degree that people give that to us. There are six chapters in Galatians. Paul spends five chapters talking extensively about how the gospel changes our self-image, about how the grace of God is what makes us worthy. And then he gets to this part and he says, okay, what would it look like having all of that and what would it look like to treat others as if you really believe that? And this is when he gets to that application. Contentment in Christ, rest in his grace, satisfaction in his love is the necessary antidote and cure for broken relationships with other people. It's the cure for self-worship. It's the cure for conceit. It's the cure for envy. It is the cure for comparison. It's the cure for all those insecurities. Lack of self-esteem, self-hate, is the cure to all of that is knowing that we are God's beloved and we have his full affection and our lives and everything in it are held securely in his hands. If we are unable to see who we are in Christ, we will be unable to see who others are in Christ and we will fail to worship them as such. Imagine in an instant that you had everything from God that you desire. Every groaning in your heart is satisfied. Every wish and longing and hope is just is given to you in a moment. Like right now, your insecurities are just cured. You have everything. You're convinced of his affection, his love. And in a moment, all of the pains of life are taken away and you're at rest. Now think of, think of this. How are you going to treat people? Probably a little different, right? How are you going to treat others? Probably be a little bit more gentle when they fail. Probably be a little more compassionate when they hurt when they offend, when they betray, when they lie, when they cheat, when they don't do what you expect or hope, you'll probably, be, you'll probably act differently. It doesn't mean you'll ignore all of those things, but you will act differently because you don't need anything from them. You don't need them to define your self-worth and image. Everything that your heart groans for in God is satisfied. Imagine that. And, and Paul just spent the last five chapters explaining that very thing. He says, but you do have that. You have been justified. You have been justified. Your sins have been forgiven. He says, by faith you are made sons of God. You are heirs to the blessings of God. You are adopted in his family. 
You are held secure in his love forever. He just spent five chapters telling us all of those things you have. You know, we await for that perfect to come. We await for um, to all the pain and consequence of sin to be wiped away and all of that guilt and shame. But he's telling us now, but you have all of this. You are in Christ. Your identity is secure in him. You could cry out to God and say, Abba, Father, you get to talk to God as if he's your daddy who loves you and cares for you. And now how do we talk to him? Now he walks through and tells us, how does that change our relationship with other people? So why don't we spend the rest of our time looking at that portrait of gospel-centered relationships right from our passage this morning. First is that gospel-centered relationships are neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. This is from, this is from verse 1 in chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of impatience. No, wait, what does it say? Oh, gentleness. I hate it when it does that. Gentleness. How do you react when you find, when you find out that someone has sinned? How do you react when you find out that someone has done something that they shouldn't have done and now it causes you some kind of pain or conflict. Your husband, your wife, a friend, a child, someone at church, a neighbor, an acquaintance. Is gentleness the word that you'd use to describe your reaction? This verse breaks my heart because it's, I wouldn't describe my, my characteristic, my initial characteristic as gentleness. You who are spiritual, so Paul is saying, he's not talking about like, you know, the super spiritual. He's saying you who are spiritual, meaning you who understand and know and, uh, and have heard the grace of God and believe in it. That's a spiritual person. Someone who belongs to God. Who, this is like base level. Those who rest in the gospel and understand it. This is how we correct. Gentleness is a word used to describe our restoring. It's like putting a dislocated arm back in its socket. Now, I've told this story so many times, so I'm not going to tell it again, but for those who haven't heard it, I'll just say this. So, I'll spare you the details, but I found myself, with the help of YouTube, you know, resetting my son's dislocated elbow in order to avoid a hospital room copay, and it worked. Everything's fine. um, He can't throw a baseball, but other than that, it's, no, kidding. And so, and and here, here, yeah, Sorry, we got some doctors in the house. We're like, don't ever do that. Well, it worked. Um, I'm available for weekends for a fee or anything. And, uh, and here are the two things that I would use to describe, like how to do that with carefully, gently, but very firm. Right? So firm, but gentle. It, it, this is how we restore somebody is, is firm, but Gentle. It's the posture that we are to take when someone fails, uh, when someone sins. We're not careless. We don't neglect it. We, we sober our thinking. We still our minds and our nerves. We're careful. We're skillful. We're, we restore. Do not confuse gentleness with indifference. Well, I don't, I don't want to get angry, so I'll just not do anything. Those aren't the two options that the scriptures give us. It isn't get angry or ignore it. We are given a third option here. It is to enter in to restore with gentleness. Gentleness here describes the manner in which we are to be obedient to restore the sinner. 
So here, so I don't want to focus too much on gentleness because gentleness is actually not the aim. The aim here is restoration. Gentleness describes the way we are to restore. But let's look at the gentleness. The restoration is actually the goal. Paul is saying here is the, in order to be obedient, here is what obedient looks like. Pursue restoration. To pursue reconciliation. What I hear, um, or spiritual care is not just like friendly interaction. You know, so spiritual care and restoration is not just being nice to others when they've wronged you, but, but loving, encouraging, restoring, and engaging in real life. And this is, like, like, don't think that I'm naive in this. This is the messiest part of your life. This will be the most painful part of your life. This will be the hardest part about being a Christian, is entering into this dynamic. But the more that we see how God has entered into that dynamic with us, that broken relationship that we have with God, and how Jesus entered in, how he took the headwinds of sin, how he took our sin upon himself, how he died on the cross when, he, when it was painful to him, not just painful, but when it took his very life. He died literally on the cross. And, if, and he would do it all again for us. The spiritual care is not just niceness, but it's, it's, it's active engagement. Good friends do not stand idly by when a brother or sister is stumbling. You know, what I hear a lot of in, in Christian circles is that everyone sins. We could agree on that, right? Everyone sins. Everyone struggles. But what I don't hear a lot of are stories of restoration. You go into church, and when you're honest and authentic, you will say, everyone sins. Okay, tell me about a story when that person sinned and, and restoration happened. Oh, I, I don't know. We don't hear a lot of those stories. We obey the first half of verse one, which says, if anyone's caught in any transaction, okay, we stop there. <laughs> so we do a lot of catching. We do a lot of catching people in their sin. I say, oh, you can't do that, you sinned. And we, but we don't finish the rest of the sentence and we don't seek restoration. If there's a lack of accountability, there's a lack of true, loving, gospel-centered relationships. That's what Paul wants us to see. You know why we can be gentle? You know why we can be restorative? Because we don't really change anyone. That's not our work. We're not called here to change people's hearts. We're called here to rest in Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and to enter into loving relationship with others, even when it's hard. Our job is not to change people's hearts. Only the Spirit can change people's hearts. Paul's very clear on that. Only the Spirit of God truly changes a person's heart and forgives them of our sin. We, don't even, we can't even forgive someone's sins. Not in the way that God does. This isn't up to us. Changing people is not what God has told us to do. So if we desire to be in a gospel-centered relationship with others, we must recognize that sin will be with us. If you're looking for a church to, to belong, I mean, part of that healthy understanding is that sin will be with us. It's not something we celebrate. It's not something that we say, well, everyone sins and just we excuse it. But we recognize that sin is with us. Sin is within us. There is this internal struggle, as Paul spent five chapters talking about. And this internal struggle has a way of spilling out into our lives, into our marriages, into our relationships, into the church. And Paul says, well, here is how you apply the gospel when it happens. When it happens. 
Um, we shouldn't be surprised when sin happens. We shouldn't be shocked when we're offended or hurt by others. Um, this is said in our passage not to discourage us, like to enter into restoration, but actually to prepare us. We should be ready and sober and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be offended. I'm going to be hurt. And when that happens, I want to be ready. I want to be armed with the, the power of Christ and the spirit of God, the spirit of gentleness to restore, to love, and to care. So that's one portrait of this gospel-centered relationship, right? We don't, we're not quick to criticize, and we're not afraid to confront. What's another one going on in verse 2 to 4? Gospel-centered relationships are other-centered. This may go without saying, but I think it's important to say, nonetheless, bearing one another's burdens fulfills the law of Christ. This is what Paul says. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, This means we are to love others as Christ has loved us. And so as we dwell deeply on all that Christ has done for us, he he pursues us, he rushes into our chaos, he is compassionate with us, he is faithful to us. We are to treat others as Christ has treated us. We come along in a time of difficulty. The point is, is a gospel-centered relationship is centered on a person, not a rule. So it's not just, okay, what are the rules of healthy relationship? No, it's, it's, it's think about the person. When, when Paul is writing this letter, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you have to imagine they're sitting there and they're hearing this letter read and there's people in that room who they're thinking about. There's people who have left that room that they're thinking about. And Paul is wanting them to apply this directly to people. Paul is wanting to release them from just following a bunch of rules, right? He spent five chapters also talking about that. We're not saved by our own righteousness and following rules as some were trying to do. So he's releasing them from rules. It's not a list of rules that makes us righteous, but he's saying the law of Christ. This fulfills the, the rule of Christ. The law of Christ is actually through our burden bearing because Christ is a burden bearer. Paul is saying, don't live by a bunch of laws, live by the law of Christ, loving as Christ loved, out of joy and not manipulation. Think of a time when you found out that someone was struggling with sin in his or her life. Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't, I can't understand why he's struggling with that. I don't struggle with that. It's easy for me not to sin in that way, so they just need to get over it. Bearing one another's burdens is to, first of all, to empathize. See, empathize is like putting yourself in the shoes of other persons. So even if, you, even if you don't struggle with that sin, it's saying, well, they're hurting, they're struggling. And to empathize is to put yourself in their experience, to walk those steps, to feel that pain, to enter into that struggle, to know what it's like to struggle yourself and to feel empathy for them. You know, a bad person to find out that you're struggling is a person who's conceited. Insecure about their own struggles, they pretend that they don't struggle at all, and then that person finds out that you're a sinner. That's the worst person to find out that you're a sinner. A good person to find out that you're sinning is a person who knows that they also struggle in sin. But listen to this, a great person to find out that you're struggling is a person who's honest about their own struggles, fully dependent on the grace of God that he provides and willing to extend that same grace to you. Do you hear that? 
A conceited person is the worst person to know that you sin. But the best person is one that says, this internal struggle is real within me. It comes out from time to time, and I need the grace of God, and so do you. Let's go there together. If we go on in this passage in verse 4 to 5, we see more of this portrait of gospel-centered relationships, and that's that they're individually responsible. Gospel-centered relationships are individually responsible. Now, this is interesting. Is this a contradiction with verse 2? Verse 4, Paul says, let each one of you test your own work, uh, carry your own, you know, bear his own load. Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. So in verse 2, he says, bear each other's burdens. And then in verse 5, he says, carry your own burden. Okay, which is it? I would... (laughs) Can we just, can we settle on five? <laughs> that everyone just does what, everyone focuses on themselves. Why, why, why is he doing this? Did he forget what he just wrote? Not at all. There are things that we should get help with and there are things that we should do on our own. This is the point. So which is which? A verse two can be abused and misused. We say to be like Jesus is to be other-centered. I'm going through this struggle and so it, all, it needs to be all about me. You need to focus on me. The Bible says to be like Jesus is to carry my burden and I have a burden so you need to be here to carry my burden. We have permission according to God's word when, when it's right to respond back to a person like that and say, no, I actually think God has asked you to carry this yourself. And how do we know which is that? There are some things that God has given us responsibility to do, responsible to our own sin, responsibility to carry our own load that no one else can rescue us from, but only, only we can carry. There's a path of obedience that God has called all of us to walk on, and no one can walk that for us. And then there are things that we do need help with, that we do need someone to come along with and to support us and encourage us. There are some burdens that we cannot share, and that is the burden of our individual responsibility to obey God in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. I can't carry your pack, and you can't carry mine. There are some things that we have to carry on our own. We ask ourselves, well, God, what have you asked me to do? What, have, what does it look like to be obedient in this moment? And that load, no one else can carry for you. We're to be responsible for what God has given to us in a way that pleases him. We are to carry things on our own that we can carry. When, when, when Paul says, let each one test his own work, it's a stern warning for those who wish to not be responsible for their sin, who wish to not be accountable to their sin. It is a stern warning to the person who always struggles and, oh, and it's always somebody else's fault why they struggle. Well, if you weren't doing this, then I wouldn't be struggling. If you weren't like this, if you would just change in this way, then I would be a joyful person. This is where God's word would say, no, there's some things you have to carry on your own. When you're being obedient and you're following where God has asked you to go and that journey becomes long and difficult, that's where he provides people to come and share that load. But he cannot, no one else can carry that obedience for you. Paul says, test your own work. Let each one test their own work. So think, am I being obedient to what God has asked me to do? The care and encouragement from one another is always a supplement, not a substitute for obeying God for what he has given to us. 
the church, like people in your church, relationships, friendships, spouse, the, all, that village of people around you to encourage you, those are supplements. Those are enhancements to what God has taught us to. They are not a substitute for it. Our first and primary calling is to obey Christ. And so gospel-centered relationships understand this. Let's look at the next one. Gospel-centered relationships invest mutually. Verse 6 through 8, let, let the one who's taught and the, one, uh, the word share all good things with the one who teaches. So here he's now going into, okay, do you have something to share? Share it with others. Here we see this exchange that ought to take place in the life of every healthy church. Not just those who are just constantly giving and sharing and serving and those who are receiving, but people who mutually invest in one another. This is a good time for me to talk about our needs in the children's ministry. No, I'm just kidding. So this is, what has God gifted you with? What has he equipped you with? How has he blessed you? Let that blessing overflow into the life of others. This is a characteristic of every healthy relationship. I don't need you to name any names, but you know those kinds of friends. You know those relationships where it feels a little lopsided. And you know, you know what, I feel like I'm the giver. I keep giving, I keep giving, and they keep taking, and I don't get much in return. And you're thinking, I don't know if I have any relationships like that. Well, then I think that maybe you're not the giver in that relationship. <laughs> maybe you're the one always taking. <clears throat> Ouch. All right. People share with one another the good things they have from God. Why? For the benefit of other people. Again, it goes back to the first one. Don't be conceited. This isn't about your praise and self-worthiness. This isn't about getting recognition. You can do things that no one else knows about it. It happens even if you don't post about it. It's true. So you can actually do good things and no one will ever know except the recipient and God. And this bears fruit. This bears fruit. What we have been given is a gift from God that shouldn't be controlled and gripped tightly, but used to benefit other people. And when that happens, I mean, beautiful things happen. The spirit, the fruit of the spirit begins to be cultivated in our life and in our church and in our relationships. It's an amazing thing when we serve others, not for self-glory, but for the good of others. I'm glad that he says this in case we heard the last verse in the last point and thought to ourselves, okay, it seems like healthy relationships are formed by everybody just kind of to each his own, focus on yourself, just take care of yourself, right? Carry your own load. Everybody has a responsibility, take care of yourself. And I'm glad that Paul keeps going in this passage because he says, wait a minute, we should share. It's not to each his own. He uses this powerful, beautiful New Testament Greek word, koinonia. Maybe you've heard it. He says, when you share with, this is, this, is, this is not just any word. This is a word that talks about the way that God shares himself with us. It is this communal sharing of all that we have with one another for the glory of Christ and the good of others. Koinonia is this bond of friendship and unity that only the Spirit can create among believers. 
It is a sharing of our baptism, of our faith. It is a sharing in the Lord's Supper and what, what it represents. It is sharing of our conflict for our sanctification. It is a sharing of everything. And now he says, share. so share those life experiences, but share your gifts, share what you have. Paul reminds us of our unity and community within the body of Christ. We're to share with one another. It's something that has been a struggle for us since we've, we were two years old, right? This has been a struggle for us since we were two, sharing with others. There's a sober warning in this. We reap what we sow. In verse 7, God is not mocked. What does it look like to mock God? It's to do, act, and live, and think in such a way as if God is not watching. Yeah, he doesn't care about this, or he doesn't see this. Uh, this one, this is, this is okay. This is hidden. I can do what I want. He says, you're mocking God. If you think that you can grip onto the blessings of God for your own self-praise, you're mocking God. If you've been blessed by another person, then reciprocate. Not to earn points with God, not to earn points with others, but to live out the genuine belief and faith in your heart. If you want good friends, then be a good friend. If God has blessed you, then bless others. Let me change that. Since God has blessed you, bless others. Paul's speaking to this specific church, and they would no doubt interpret it in specific ways of like, okay, what do we have? How do we bless? Let's do that with our group. Imagine there's, I imagine there's a, there's a variety of gifts in this room. There are. There are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of opportunities. There are a variety of experiences and blessings and wisdoms and discernments. There are a variety of things that God has given to our church. How do we make ourselves better how do we make ourselves more in love with Christ and more unified together? If this is your church home, then share generously with what God has given you. His grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, but it also means your possessions, your energy, your time. Be available to be used by God. Pray for opportunities. When you start praying for opportunities, you'll start to see an opportunity. And God will give you the will to walk through. Pray for God's work among us. Pray for us as a church. Pray for his, his, the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest in our lives inwardly and overflow into our relationships. Pray for restoration. Pray for peace. Pray for joy. Pray for love of God to abound in all of us. These are the ways that we, in one of the ways we share our, our good that God has given to us. Finally, we look at verse 9 and 10, looking at the end here. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in the due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Finally, have a Christ-centered motivation. So this is kind of answering the why. Like, why do we do this? What's motivating us? Because you might be enthusiastic about this, and hopefully today you'll, you'll kind of co come away from hearing God's word, and you'll say, you know, this really motivated me and encouraged me to be faithful in being more responsible in the church relationship with others. And I promise in three weeks from now, you, you won't feel that way anymore. <laughs> But then, but then you'll be encouraged again by God's word. So this doesn't last, right? That enthusiasm, the motivation doesn't always last. So, so this is why Paul says, don't grow tired of it. You're going to get tired in a lot of ways, but don't get tired of doing good to others. 
if we do not give up, do not lose motivation. See, a lack of follow-through in relationships can have the same result of a lack of follow-through in, in gardening. Just planting the seed and watering it um, isn't all that it takes to build a healthy garden. You have to tend to it. You've got to pick the weeds. You have to fertilize. There's a lot of things you have to do. You have to prune. There's a lot of painful things. You have to wait a long time. Paul knows this. He's encouraging us. It's a lot like gardening. It's not like a microwave. Growing in this kind of gospel-centered relationship is more like gardening. The most faithful relationships are the ones that confront us when we need confronting, challenge us, encourage us, invest in us, bear our burdens, and call us to be responsible to what God has called us to. The most fruitful relationships are the ones that mold us and stretch us and at times wound us and hurt us. They're the ones that challenge us to remember the greater call in our life is not comfort but holiness. It is knowing Jesus. Christ has prepared our circumstances so that we can know him more fully. He's given us his church, a gathering of his people. That is why he says like, this is more important than any relationship you will have. To keep with this, this sowing or gardening analogy, a harvest costs more than the, merely the purchase of the seeds. A garden will be cheap. Look how cheap these seeds are. 99 cents for like 12,000 <laughs> seeds. Oh, this is going to be cheap. No, there, there's cost. Time, money, vision, soil, energy, motivation. You are spending your life on this garden. Everything needs to be in this. When you are committed to people, you will have less money, less time, less energy. But what happens is we enter into relationship and we have less money, less time, less energy, and we say, this must not be a right relationship for me. It's too painful, too costly. Jesus says, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be sacrificial. Supposed to, you're supposed to spend. But what you gain in return is priceless in everything you've ever wanted. Christ would have counted the cost. He did count the cost. He gave his own life. It was still the right thing to do. The cost of gospel-centered relationships are many, but well worth it. And that's what he says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. You will grow tired in doing this. You will grow tired in applying the gospel to your relationships. But he ends with a word of hope. It'll be worth it. You will not dis be disappointed. A message of hope. You will never be sorry for doing good. You will never be sorry for doing the right thing. You will never be sorry for obeying God. In the moment, it may feel that way. And in the moment, you may lose and go without. But you will never, ever be sorry. Why? Because when we are treating people like this, we are being just like Jesus. Because that's the way he is to us. He knew the cost. He knew it would cost him his whole life. He counted the cost. He calculated it. And with the joy set before him, he endured the cross.
He calls us to do that with others.